Today the scripture comes from John, um, beginning in chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is available to us. And we thank you that as believers, your spirit is within us and it is guiding us into truth and grace and beauty. So, Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds today to see how we can take steps of obedience to you. I pray that you'll speak through Ryan and that his words will fall aside and your word will stand and remain. In your name we pray. Amen. We're beginning a new series where we're specifically looking at the encounters of Jesus on his way to the cross. I fully expect that as we uh, delve into these encounters that we will likely find our own stories interwoven through the encounters that Jesus has with different individuals. So I've selected a handful of themes that, that I thought, you know, people at New City could relate to as we, as we look at these encounters of Jesus. And our goal in this series is, is, is pretty simple. It's this, is that, that the Holy Spirit might increase our capacity to receive enjoy and extend the grace of God for ourselves with one another and for our city. So that's what we're going after. We want to sink ourselves more into God's grace. I mean, if it's that good of news, it should be good news to us daily. And so we just want to lean more heavily into that. Because, you know, the reality is, is over the last six months, we've been looking a lot at the implications of the gospel, meaning how does God call us to live as obedient servants in this world? So we, we looked at the Ten Commandments, a series through the Ten Commandments. We looked at a series through the book of James, which is a lot of demands of the gospel, you know. And then we've just looked at a servant leadership series. And so we just kind of wanted to swing more over to the other side of God's grace and talk about what Jesus has done for us. And, and learn to what it means to be actually saved and rescued by Jesus. 
When I was 13, I, I, uh, I lived in the country. I'm, I'm talking about like Kentucky, like the boondocks, you know, backwoods, like 30 minutes away from anything, right? That's where I grew up. I was 13, I lived there. And uh, my friend Chris and I, he was like the only other smaller child that lived uh, within any kind of distance of us, maybe a mile away. Uh, we were playing together and, and we decided that we would play hide and go seek in the woods. Because hide and go seek, you know, out of the woods wouldn't be fun enough. We decided to play in the woods and, uh, you know, it was getting, you know, kind of challenging to find each other. And so I had this great idea that I was, I was going to, I was going to find an even better spot than I had found before. And so I climbed up uh, in a tree. Now this tree, uh, you know, I, I hadn't taken any, any like, you know, advanced classes as a 13 year old. I didn't really understand, you know, what, like, what kind of critical mass you would need to climb up a tree on a branch and things like that. And so I start climbing up the tree and I get about uh, 12 or 13 feet up in the tree and I'm kind of hidden in the, in the leaves of it. And I'm thinking, he's never going to find me. It's going to get dark out here. And about that time when I'm getting cocky, all of a sudden I start to hear the cracking of the branch that I'm sitting on. And lo and behold, the whole thing gives way and I come crashing down to the ground. But the thing about it is this, I fall all the way to the ground. I didn't happen to look underneath the tree when I started climbing up it, but there was a huge rock underneath the tree. So that not only was there a huge rock, it was on the side of a hill. And so I hit the bottom, I hit the rock, and then I proceed to roll down the hill until I hit another tree. And there I lie. <laughs> and when I kind of come to my senses, I'm not sure how it all came about, but I think I was unconscious for a little bit because I don't really remember a lot of the things. I had to go back and see the tree that I was in and stuff. I wake up and I'm looking up at my friend Chris. And, and he says, found you. <laughs> and I'm like, uh. You know, like when the wind's knocked out of you, you can't really talk. I'm talking to him. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, I need to get up and, and get out of here. You know, this, this really hurt. And he said, you know, you need to stop. Don't make a move. And so anyway, I, I, I listened to him for some reason. Um, and he goes and gets his mom, who is a nurse, and she says, you need to stop. And so then they go get their ATV, and they kind of load me out and take me to the hospital. I get to the hospital, and the, the doctor comes in to see me after the x-ray, and he says, hey, Ryan, you, I've got some bad news for you. You have a fractured vertebrae in your back. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, does this mean I can still play basketball or not? And, um, and he says, here's the deal. Like, we've seen these kind of cases before, and if you would have moved, if you would have tried to walk, you would have, you would have injured that to the point where you would need needed surgery. But because you stayed still, now you're going to have a, a, a prognosis and a plan for healing that's just going to involve rest. Now, I tell you that story because I, did, I didn't need surgery. It was great. It didn't complicate my life like many times when you have back surgery does. But I tell you that story because the, the wildness of grace is this, is the more that you learn how to rest and trust, the stronger you are in grace. It's, it's counterintuitive to everything that we think because we think if I just get going and get after it with God, then my life is going to be more blessed. I'm going to be more secure. But the wildness of grace is that Jesus meets us in our weakness. And in fact, he can't meet us in any other way. We can't understand grace apart from rest and apart from trust. The most valuable thing you can bring, church, to the Lord is your weakness. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? What he said, he, he approached the Lord and said, take this away from me, I've done everything I can to, to this thorn that's in my flesh. And he lists all of his experiences with Jesus. And then Jesus meets him in prayer. And he says that my, per, my, my power is made perfect in weakness, Paul. And then Paul says, okay, whatever, I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the power of God can be displayed in my life. Well, that reality is an invitation for us to learn, to rest, to learn, to trust so that we can grow in grace. So a big idea of where we're going today is this. Jesus saves us from believing that we can save ourselves. Let me say it one more time. Jesus saves us from believing that we can save ourselves. We're going to be in John chapter 3 today, as you know, and we're going to be 
talking about Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus. Now, out of all the people in the Bible that could and should be able to save themselves, Nicodemus is at the top of the list. Um, his reputation, his accolades, his potential, his uh, track record of faithfulness, all of those things indicate that Nicodemus had his stuff absolutely together when it came to his relationship with God. I wish I had time to give you a full history lesson on the history of the Pharisees, but, but I, I don't think it'd be appropriate this morning. But I do need to share a little bit of, about what a Pharisee is to you, because Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's a ruler of the Jews. But here's what you need to know about the Pharisees as we dig into this. Because you're going to be tempted to think, oh, those Pharisees, when you hear about this. But, but what I'm going to share with you, I think will change your mind a little bit when you hear who the Pharisees actually were. Uh, 164 to 167 years before Jesus came, the Jews were being oppressed by the Syrians who had taken over Jerusalem. And, um, and King uh, Antiochus IV wanted to Hellenize or influence a Hebrew culture with Greek culture. And so what he began to do as the king over that area is he began to inhabit Jerusalem and take it over with might and with force. And so, so what, what they were trying to do is, is to wipe off the face of the planet any evidence of Hebrew and Jewish culture, i.e. God's chosen people, right? This is what he's trying to do. And so the Jews went along with it. I mean, they, they kind of had to. They didn't, they didn't offer as much resistance as you might think for quite some time until this one thing that happened. This, this straw that broke the camel's back for the Jewish people was this. Antiochus said, you know what? I'm really going to get to him now. I'm going to take over the temple in Jerusalem. The, 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 the holy of holies, the place where it is believed that God, Yahweh, dwells for his Jewish people, his chosen people. I'm going to take that over and I'm going to show them who the real God is, Zeus. And I'm going to offer a sacrifice to Zeus. But not only am I going to offer a sacrifice to Zeus, I'm going to offer an unclean sacrifice to Zeus just to twist the knife a little bit for the Jewish people. And so he, there he offers a pig, an unclean animal, right there on the altar uh, at the temple. And something snaps within God's people. Something goes up, this conviction for God's people to fight for the faith that God has brought into their lives. The embers that were there in this group of Jews, the, they're known as the Hasidic Jewish community, rises up and they begin to revolt against Antiochus and the Syrian community's oppression of them. And, and their, their convictions are convictions that are centered on the Word of God. And in little time, they push the Syrians out of Jerusalem. Now, the Hasidic community was so focused on God's Word and the implications of following God's Word that in time, uh, what began to happen in that community is that they split. So the Hasidic Jews... Uh, came into kind of two factions, two different types of Hasidic Jews. What's called the Essenes and what's called the Pharisees. Now the Essenes and the Pharisees held their convictions differently about the Word of God. The Essenes were what we would call separatists now. They were, they were kind of the modern day monks uh, where they would, the, their convictions led them to live separate lives from God's people to uphold the Word of God. The Pharisees were actually quite different. The Pharisees, their convictions about God's Word and holding it high led them to live among God's people even though they had these convictions. And so what you see, the, the Pharisees initially were, were kind of these hero scholars that rescued Jerusalem from the Syrians. That's not typically what you think about when you hear the word Pharisee, is it? Does it change the way that you view Nicodemus this morning? Absolutely it does. And so with that in mind, the, the nobility of rescuing Jerusalem from, uh, from Syrian oppression, let that frame where we're headed today with Nicodemus, all right? So here's our outline of, of where I want to go. Just, just three things I want to look at. We've got a lot of text, but it's a narrative. Three things. Jesus exposes for us a problem that we didn't know we had. We see that through Nicodemus' life. We see it in our lives. Second thing is this. Jesus embodies for us 
the gift we didn't know we needed. And thirdly, Jesus establishes for us a life we didn't think could be eternal. All right, let's dig into the first point here. Jesus exposes a problem for us we didn't know that we had. Let me remind you of what John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, which is the connecting text of Jesus flipping over the table, tables in the temple and his encounter with Nicodemus during the week of Passover. Let me remind you what it says. It says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Jesus, many believed in his name, keyword believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But when Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, all right, he didn't kind of uh, get all googly-eyed over the people that were amazed by his miracles, right? He didn't entrust himself to them. And why? Because he knew all people. He had a deep knowledge, not just a head knowledge, he knew their hearts, right? And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, so, 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 so here's the key problem. Jesus wants to show us with Nicodemus the nature of what true faith is. Because here's what we tend to think that faith is. And faith is the thing that saves you, right? It's by faith that we're saved through grace. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast, right? Ephesians 2, 8-10. What Jesus shows us is this. What he, what he exposes about us is this. Is that we think that seeing is believing. We say, if I could just see it, I would believe it. If I could just walk with Jesus, I would follow him. If I could just see a miracle occur, I'd have faith. That's how we operate in our humanity. But Jesus flips that kind of thinking on its head. What Jesus shows us is that believing is seeing. That that faith actually precedes us being able to see the kingdom established. And that's why we see these people that are following Jesus and the crowds are following Him, but Jesus isn't drawn to the crowds. He could care less. He's interested in the few that might actually believe. That's why we see Jesus not interested in those people because in John chapter 19, the very same people that are so mesmerized with his gifts and his healings and all of those things that he can do for them, not one of them is found when he's on the cross. What does that reveal? What does that reveal about the nature of faith? Is that it was circumstantial faith, wasn't it? It wasn't genuine saving faith. Their belief was false believing. Jesus didn't change, but their faith did. So John wants us to know something about Jesus' nature straight out of the gate. Jesus knows you. Jesus doesn't just know about you, where you work, how many kids you got, you know, your bio, your LinkedIn profile. He, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your sinful tendencies. Jesus knows you as a person apart from what you can do. And there's no one else in the world that knows you like that. There's no one else that can see you for you apart from what you can do for them. There's no one else. Jesus knows you and John wants us to see that this morning. That in, that in knowing that, we might see what the nature of saving faith is. So that's kind of the, 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 the kicker that we need to see before we look at Nicodemus here. So let's enter into John 3, 1 through 8 here. The narrative of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. I want you to notice the details of the encounter. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees, we talked about what a Pharisee is, named Nicodemus. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was on the Sanhedrin. Okay, I'll tell you more about that in a second. This man came to Jesus by night, not during the day, and said to him, Rabbi, which is an official title, kind of puffing Jesus up a little bit, you know. Jesus doesn't really enter into it. He says, Rabbi, teacher, we, want, we, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So you see, that's the he's 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 operating out of the frame of believing is seeing, you know. Jesus, I, I know the word, I, I know there's something special about you. He goes on, verse three. Jesus answered him, 
with a completely different thing that he's asking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, let me just tell you how it is, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is, is flesh. It's tem- temporal. It's, it's earthly. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's, it's, it's eternal. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, you're coming to me on the grounds of who you are like that's going to mean something to me. But I'm telling you that people that see the kingdom of God are people that God sets his love on and opens their eyes and gives them the gift of a new heart. That's what it means to be born again, Jesus is saying. So Nicodemus, let's notice a few details. He comes to him at night as a Pharisee and a ruler. Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the top 70 Jews in all of Judaism all over the world, and they were in charge of all the Jewish people. So it is the Passover festival, the biggest festival, one of several, but the biggest festival in Jewish culture. Everyone would have come into Jerusalem. Everyone would be in town. Every inn would be booked. Every person's couch would be slept on. People were sleeping everywhere they could. Jerusalem is small. I've been there before. It's not huge. Everybody comes into town. Now, Nicodemus is believed by most commentators to be not only a teacher in in Judaism, in Jerusalem, but the teacher, meaning the best of the best. Notice the definite article in which Jesus uses to describe Nicodemus in John 3, he says, are you not the teacher of Israel? So Jesus expands the problem by showing him something. He says, you know, not only do you not know what you need, you're asking me for the wrong thing, but Nicodemus, you can't avoid abandoning me. You can't avoid, you can't avoid not following me. Like there's, there's, there's nothing you can do on your own that's going to secure my love for you. It's, it's interesting. In your own strength, you will, and we need to hear this, okay? Like in our own strength, we, you need to know, just like those people that were following Jesus that, that saw what he did and believed, you need to know that there's nothing that you can do to keep yourself from abandoning Jesus. There's nothing you can do. Think about Peter. My Lord and my God, you know, like, like, I mean, actually, that was Thomas. But Peter, you know, he confesses Jesus is the Christ. You know, and Jesus has this moment with him, Matthew 16. And, but here's the deal. What's Peter doing? The exact same thing in his own strength. He's abandoning Jesus when it gets tough. You need to know that there's nothing that you can do to not abandon Jesus. That only His love set on you, being born, i.e. being born of the Spirit and of water, is the only thing that can keep you in relationship with Jesus. The only thing that won't be non-circumstantial. There are likely some of you in this room today that are wondering, where is Jesus right now in my life? Where where is Jesus? Sure doesn't feel like he's king, these things that I'm enduring, these things that I'm going through. And my question to you is this, what are you depending on as evidence of his presence in your life? Because I think we, we have different ideas as Americans on what it looks like to be blessed in Jesus, don't we? Then, then maybe what the kingdom of God actually shows us when we read the Scriptures. Our, Jesus doesn't change. He never does. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever as the Scriptures tell us. What changes is the fickle nature of our faith. Right? There, there's, saving, there's, there's true saving faith, and there's this kind of fickle faith that we wrestle through a lot of times. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if you have doubts that you don't have saving faith, but I'm saying that our faith is in progress and it's growing and Nicodemus' story reveals that. Nicodemus didn't know that the only way he could be saved is to start over by receiving a new heart. Nicodemus didn't know that all of his pursuits in the most noble fashions of being a Pharisee and everything that that would entail would be of no value 
and earning a new heart. Nicodemus didn't know that. And so when we come to God and we think about our relationship with God, we're tempted to think, look at the things that I've done for God. Nicodemus, in all regards, was a self-made man. Many of you in here could be considered the same thing. Many of us. Look at the things we've accomplished. Look at the things, look at the degrees we got on the wall. Look at the, look at the life, look how much money we've given. Look at the things we've helped start. Look at all these ambitious things that we've been about. And Jesus says, that's great, but none of it's going to help you eternally. It's not going to help you. Think about this. Nicodemus had more Bible memorized than most of us have ever read. Nicodemus had more good works documented than most of us have ever seen. Yet Nicodemus still had fickle faith. People probably kept telling Nicodemus how great he was. They marveled, this man must be close to God. Look at his life. I wish I could be like Nicodemus. Maybe the little kids whispered as he and the Sanhedrin passed down the dusty streets of Jerusalem. But Nicodemus, at the height of, his, of the season of spirituality that the Jews would have, like the, the Easter, so to speak, for the Jews, like the highest spiritual time of the year, the Passover festival, time of celebration, found himself mysteriously confused in the middle of the night just before the Passover feast with all of the answers, yet no peace in his heart. That's Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. He must have thought to himself, there must be more to this than I see. Nicodemus was a self-made man, yet he found himself so empty when he approached Jesus. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he tries to beat around the bush, Jesus cuts straight to the chase. Hey, Nicodemus, because I know what's in man and I'm not like wooed by you because you're the greatest teacher of Israel or whatever and no one knows who I am as Jesus, right? Because that's the truth at that time. In John 3, people, people, Jesus was just coming on the scene. He's from Galilee. He wasn't from the big city. People know Nicodemus. Jesus is just kind of this thing over here on the side. Jesus refused to find any, to entertain any thoughts about, you know, anything that might come, any popularity that might come from relating to Nicodemus. Jesus could do that because he knew what was in man. He knows what is in us. And that's the best news we can see. That's why in John chapter 4, we're going to look at that at some point in the series, the, the woman at the well in Samaria. Do you remember what happens Whenever she meets Jesus and he says, hey, you got like five husbands and the guy you're married with now is not your husband, right? That's like terrible news for someone that's, that's been in that situation. But she goes and she tells everyone in the city what? Come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's our worst nightmare. That was good news to her because she was finally known Jesus was on the brink with Nicodemus of him realizing that he's finally and fully known apart from what he can do. That's the invitation that Jesus offers each of us today, to be finally and fully known apart from what we do. And that's what it means to grow in grace and enjoy grace. Chances are, if you are discouraged in your walk with Jesus today, I bet you're approaching Jesus like Nicodemus did. I think we, we, we tend to drift toward that. Jesus, if you could just help me find a new job, that would fulfill me, we might say. Jesus, if uh, you could just heal me of this pain, I'd be good with you. Jesus, if you could just give me the gift of a partner in marriage, I'd be satisfied. Jesus, if you could just help me get out of this hole financially, I'd be in a good place. I could serve you. Jesus, if you could just help me kick this addiction, I would serve you with all of my life. The first disciples saw Jesus do this and more, and yet what did they do at the end of Jesus' life? They still abandoned him. There's nothing more that Jesus could do for you and you see him that would cultivate faith in you. There's no amount of circumstances and favor that you could feel that would cultivate a new heart in you. None of that will add up to eternal life is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And this is the diagnostic for us, that we are all like Nicodemus. He's a living narrative for us. He didn't know that he had to have a new heart to have genuine faith that would save him. Some of you in here, you have a new heart. You're following Jesus. It's not perfect, but you still 
lean toward old heart religious tendencies. And when I say religious tendencies, here's what I mean. Because religion isn't necessarily a bad thing, but, but the way that I'm defining religion is this, is that it's our approach to secure a relationship with God. It's our work. So Jesus comes and he kind of flips that upside down. Nicodemus, the most religious figure in history almost, the ruler of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says, look, it's my work that's going to secure you, not yours. That's what you've got to know about what Jesus is after. And so some of you come to church and you feel discouraged. And you're like, man, here, here it comes again. I'm going to get convicted about how awful my walk with God is and how little I consider him throughout my week. Here, here's the deal. None of that matters. It's only Jesus. It's only and always Jesus. So some of you in here, you have that new heart, but you're prone to those religious tendencies to secure your joy and your faith. That's what you look toward. But this isn't the way of the new heart. The old heart has to see to believe. The new heart has to believe to see. It's, uh, it's so counterintuitive for us that, that the more that we sink ourselves into what Jesus Christ has come and become for us, the more that we can see the kingdom of God in every circumstance. But we're so prone to try to find Jesus through our circumstances that we get caught up just like Nicodemus. And we, we come to him embarrassed and ashamed at night asking for him to put our life back together. But, but then there's, so there's, that's one part of you in here. The others, then there's others of you in here who, you're like Nicodemus in maybe a different way. You're, you're doing the things that should make for joy in life, but, but you're empty. And you're realizing, maybe for the first time, that you've ever, never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never actually come to him. You've done a lot of religious things. You've been in church since you were born, maybe. You've, um, you even serve in the nursery, <laughs> which we need your help, by the way. <clears throat> but you're realizing that you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus. And, and, and it can be one of the most embarrassing things for you because you realize, man, I've been doing all this stuff, but I'm not a believer. I've not been born again. I've not received Jesus. And what I want to tell you as the pastor of this church and your pastor is that the only thing that could be more embarrassing than that was playing the part of an actor all along. And just acting like you're further along than you are. So as I continue to preach this, what I, what I want you to think about is where are you at with Jesus? Like, have you received him in faith? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you proclaimed the name that is above every name and bowed your knee to him and received the Lord in baptism? Have you taken that step? Because if you have not, the scriptures would indicate to us that you probably are not a born-again follower of Jesus. That's what makes Jesus saves us and we follow Him in obedience, right? So consider that today as I continue to hash this out here. The second thing we see about Nicodemus is this, is that Jesus embodies for us the gift we didn't know that we needed. So in this encounter, Nicodemus says to him, verse 9, Jesus, how can these things be? He's talking about the born-again kind of thing. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Here's that phrase I was talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he leans in a little further. This is where I want to focus on this text. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses clicks back into what, what uh, Nicodemus would be familiar with, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He leans further in. He speaks Nicodemus' language. He's the teacher of all of Israel. Of course he knows about Moses, right? He knows the Hebrew. So what Jesus has shown Nicodemus is that he really has to start over if he wants to follow Jesus. really has to start over. He can't bring all of these things that he's done, all these accolades, all this self-madeness that he has. It's going to be ineffective in him seeing the kingdom of God and living out and advancing the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus says, how can this be, man? i got to start all the way over? You know how embarrassing that's going to be? There's no way this is going to work. So just when Jesus shows Nicodemus that he's not any more special than any other person, here's what he begins to
to lean in with is that John 3.14, when he talks about Moses in the wilderness. I want to I remind you from Numbers chapter 21, if you've got a Bible, flip over there. What, what, is, what is Jesus talking about with Moses and the serpent in the wilderness? Okay, what's he, what's he mean with that? Let me, let me read just a few verses from Numbers 21 and give you a little context here. Uh, here's what, here's what uh, Numbers says. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people came, became impatient on the way. Now they've already been, they've already been delivered. You know, they've already, they've already seen God's faithfulness. Um, they've already experienced God's goodness and His rescue. All that stuff's already happened, okay? And, um, and, and here's what he says. Uh, God, uh, Moses says this, Why have you brought us, I'm sorry, the people say this to Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why have you rescued us, you know, consumed all the, uh, the Pharaoh's men in the Red Sea for us to die in the wilderness? Why are our circumstances not telling us a better story? Is what they're saying. It's the same question we ask every single week, isn't it? For there is no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So there actually was food, they just didn't like the food, right? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. You want to play? You want to to be God? Let's see how this works out is what God says. He sends fiery serpents. I don't know what fiery means here. I don't know if they're on fire or they're like biting them and it feels like fire. I'm not sure, but it's bad. And And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So he rescued them through the Red Sea. They complained. They tried to play God. He sent fiery serpents. They died. They could have died in the sea. Instead, they died by the snake, right? And the people came to Moses and said, uh-oh, we've sinned. We, we, we've sinned. We've, we've, we've met, we're not God. We've really messed this thing up. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses, our leader, the Lord's anointed. So Moses, um, so, so here's what he says. Um, um, verse 7, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, is what they say. So Moses prays for the people because they ask him to. We want you to be our leader again, Moses. Intercede for us. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole. So don't put a real snake on the pole, but make one. And set it on the pole that it'll serve kind of as an, as an example, as a symbol. That everyone who has been bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's just an aside, a little fun fact. You know what the symbol for medicine is? It's the serpent on the pole, right? That's where it comes from. Imagine that. God has something to do with medicine. So the Israelites miraculously delivered. It didn't take them long to lose their gratitude of that deliverance. Just like you and I, we forget like each week, right? How grateful we're, we're, we're praising them today. Tomorrow we're complaining, right? Just, we're just like them. And then God shows them kind of what they're in for. And immediately when they feel the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their unbelief, the consequences of what they thought they knew be- was best for their lives, what do they do? They repent, right? Ow, it hurts to be bit by a snake. God, you must be God and I'm not, Right? God reminds us sometimes when he lets us feel the consequences of our sin, it leads us to repentance. It's his way of being kind to us, as Romans says. So Moses enters in, he intercedes on behalf of the people because they request it, and God saves them. But it's interesting how he saves them. There's so much imagery in this that Nicodemus, the light bulb would have had to gone off for Nicodemus. So what's he do? So the thing that bites them is a serpent, what is the serpent in the Scriptures? It is a picture of what? Sin, right? From the Garden of Eden, from Genesis chapter 3. Snakes are symbolic of sin. And Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan in the form of a serpent. So God tells Moses to make this fiery serpent and place it on a stick that those who see it shall look at it and live. So here's the thing. Let's just bring this down, to, bring this down here. We've all been bitten by sin. We've all been bitten by the fiery serpent that Jesus is talking about. Not just, not just those unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. We've been bitten. We are sin-bitten, serpent-bitten people. And Nicodemus, and me and you, all of us, 
But Jesus has become the serpent bit God-man on our behalf. Genesis 3.15 talks about this, that, that, the, the, that the, the serpent would, would, would strike his heel, but he would crush his head is what the scriptures say. And, and Jesus does that. That's the narrative that we see from Genesis to Numbers all the way through Revelation, that Jesus becomes the, the, the serpent-bitten God-man on our behalf. Notice it doesn't say, you must become a serpent-bitten God-man if you want to be saved. That's what Nicodemus thought had to happen, right? But, but, what, he, but what he shows is something so beautiful. Romans 8.3 describes this. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin that he could condemn sin in the flesh. The only way to condemn sin, to condemn the devil, to condemn the, the, the fiery serpent in our life is for God to become man, Jesus, and take on the form of sin in our lives on our behalf. So, so Jesus has been lifted up. It's a picture of the cross. Bore the weight of sin, and we, like the Israelites, look to that symbol of the cross and the resurrection for our healing. Amen? That, that's what he's showing Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Psalm 121, lift your eyes up. Stop looking at yourself. Lift your eyes up if you want to be saved, Nicodemus. I don't care what you've done. Brother, I just want to know you. Lift your eyes up to the hills. He's where our help comes from. The maker of heaven and earth. The work is done and all we have to do is look with hearts of faith at the cross, which is a mirror of our sin. We look face to face with the devil when we look at our sin and we look face to face with the devil when we look at the cross and we see Jesus, the perfect God-man, the juxtaposition of all that the cross symbolizes by faith and what he has become for us, our healing. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But Jesus says, in order for this to take effect in your life, it's not about just entering into the womb, Nicodemus. You're, we're kind of off on our metaphors here. But you've got to be born of the Spirit and water. So any, anyone that has this, this idea of a, a born-again life, and I know that that, that that phrase has been politicized. I'm a little younger than, than when kind of all that rolled out. But I know from history that that phrase has been politicized, but church, we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's no better way to describe what happens to a Christian, okay? We've got to redeem that phrase, to be born again of spirit and water. And, and to be born of spirit is to have a new and regenerate heart, meaning that something occurs within us that enables us to have faith in Jesus. That God does a work in us that first wakes us up and replaces our affections for something so much different than what the way that we used to live. Oftentimes, we are not aware of when this happens. All, the, all we know is we're, we're suddenly interested in Jesus when we were not before. Maybe you look back on your life and you see that or you don't, or maybe that's happening right now. I'm not sure, but it is a, it is a, a fulfillment of prophecies what's happening. And Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 talks about this new spiritual heart that you get. Let me remind you of it. Ezekiel prophesies, scriptures say this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, the Lord says to Ezekiel, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, give you, plural, regenerate Israel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Okay, who's doing the work here? God. So you see how this is incompatible for Nicodemus? God, look at all the work I've done. Look at all the work I've done. God says, hey, actually, I'm doing the work. I'm doing the work. This is what's so hard. This is why it's so hard to follow the Lord. It's because we, we are so prone to think that it's our work that does something when it's all his. He goes on to say, I'll, I'll put a new heart, a new spirit in you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. So what is the heart of stone? It is the unbelieving heart, the one that resists grace. One of the hardest things you will ever do on your journey with God is to receive his grace. Not just in kind of a, a boo-boo moment, ah, oh, I slipped up, I need grace, but to seek it every morning before you start your day. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Why? Because we want to believe in our heart of hearts that we don't need a new heart. And it is an assault against the kingdom of God when we live that way. 
So he wants to remove that heart of stone that's resistant to the Lord and His ways and following Him. And he wants to return it. He wants to replace it with a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh, he says, which is a spirit within us, will cause you to walk in the statues and carefully obey His rules. So we see that the ladder we've been climbing like Nicodemus, look at all the good stuff I've done, God, with this old stony heart is incompatible with the kingdom of God. But the new heart that has been received through faith in Jesus, he's now interested in Jesus that God has given us, now sees the commands of God as an invitation on living God's way. Not as a ladder to climb to earn God's favor. You see the difference. That's what Nicodemus is wrestling through here. So not only is he born of the Spirit, but he's born of water. So at the same time, John the baptizer, which is a different John, was baptizing people and getting them ready for the coming of Jesus. And it was this baptism of repentance, getting them ready to receive Jesus. And he's saying that, that you must, when Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says you must be born of the Spirit and water, he's saying you must receive this new heart by faith, that spiritual heart, that regenerate heart. And if you've received this new heart, here's how it will act. It will repent. That's what he's saying. An, an old heart doesn't repent, a new heart repents. That's the difference. And what is repentance? It's turning back to God when we see the sin that's in our lives. An old heart just tries to cover it up, to expose it. As John says later in John 3 here, he says, you know, the, the old heart is constantly trying to cover itself, cover its tracks. The new heart is repentant. It's turning toward the Lord. So this would have been new to Nicodemus. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and me and you that if anything other than the cross and the resurrection are the source of our deepest security in this life, you're living as a self-made person. And, and that, that self-made person will ultimately not inherit eternal life is what he's saying. But if you come to Jesus, you let him be your everything, you've already got eternal life, he says. Lastly, I'm preaching along here, church, sorry. Jesus establishes for us a life we didn't know could be eternal. So this is the, the most famous verse in all the Bible, right? Let me read it for you. I want you to hear it in the context of what Jesus and Nicodemus are wrestling through. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, not believes in himself, but believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, church, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Their hardened hearts showed themselves. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Nicodemus, Eternal life is what God desires to give you. It is much more than what you're asking of Him, is what Jesus is telling him. I know you don't see that, that this can be possible or even possible possible or even probable or something you may even want, but that's your deepest need. That God sent Jesus for us as his church, not for the primary purpose of judging us, but rather for life. Now, judgment is the other face of love, isn't it? Like when Jesus sets his love on a person, like those that do not receive Jesus, he's saying that their works are already exposed. They've already got judgment because of the way that they're living hopelessly and not receiving him. That's some of you in this room today. Statistically, it has to be. You, you've not received the love of God. You have stiff-armed it. Your heart is hard. God desires to give you this new heart. He's saying that you're already living out the condemnation of sin now. But if you come to him, if you're willing to come to him, the way that the invitation for Nicodemus was, and for me and for you, if you're willing to come, he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is a heart that is known. It's a heart that's known. Not for what you do, but for, what, for who he is and who you have become to him because of who he is. That's what God wants to give you, is a heart that's known. And so there may be areas of your life today as you're hearing this where you're thinking, you know, I'm not known in those areas because I'm constantly trying to cover up my life. Constantly trying to cover up my sin. Constantly trying not to be found out. That's a heart. That's a place of a heart that's not known. God wants to know you. 
And for your heart to be a heart that's soft toward Him, that's repentant toward Him, born of the water and born of spirit. You see, here's the beautiful thing about Nicodemus, is that sometimes we don't have any resolution. But in Nicodemus, we do. In John chapter 7 and John chapter 19, Nicodemus' name surfaces again. And the last and the most beautiful part of Nicodemus' story is uh, Nicodemus is with this, this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to claim Jesus' body after he's died on the cross. Why do you think Nicodemus was there? Because he knew that that had to happen. He had to be lifted up in order for him to have eternal life. So he was the first one on the scene to claim that body because he wanted the promise of what it instilled. My, my question to you is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with the fact that we're on this self-made man track, but Jesus offers us this eternal life that is absolutely the opposite? Will you receive it this morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank You that, um, that You love us so much, Lord. That... Um, <laughs> That God so loved the world that He gave His Son. That love led to generosity for you. Lord, thank you. I'm so different than you in my flesh, Lord. We're so different than you, but you are making us more and more into the image of Jesus as we trust you. Lord, I pray for those in this room today that have stony hearts. Hearts that are not regenerate. Hearts that are still bringing what we can do for God, what we can do in this life, to you for approval. Lord, I thank You that You reject those hearts. That You said there's no possible way that I could ever give You anything eternally. Thank You, Lord. I pray that my friends in this room would receive that as an act of love from You. Lord, I pray that You would bring friends in this room this morning to the end of themselves so that they might receive You in weakness. God, and I pray that You would do a supernatural work in this place this morning for the sake of our souls. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.